and welcome back to Sounding Cinema. My name is Nathan Platt, and I teach music and film history at the University of Iowa. And I'm Anastasia Schulze. I study vocal music and do music history research at the university. This episode is the second chapter in our two-part series on West Side Story. In our last episode, we surveyed the career of the film's co-director, Robert Wise, a former sound editor whose work as a director spans genres from science fiction to horror to historical epic. We also interviewed Ernesto Acevedo Munoz, author of West Side Story as Cinema. He talked about how the sound of West Side Story reflects powerfully on immigrant experiences. Finally, we listened to the layers of music and sound effects in the film's opening scene. Here, musical gestures and realistic sound swirl together in a manner that anticipates the blend of realistic and impressionistic qualities featured later. And that's where this episode picks up the story. Today, we're going to be listening closely to the sounds of dancing and singing bodies. To do this, we're going to turn to two individuals who don't get much attention in discussions of West Side Story. Rehearsal pianist and arranger Betty Wahlberg and sound recordist and mixer Murray Spivak. Wahlberg and Spivak's work gives the on-screen dances in West Side Story an expressive depth that affects what we see and hear. In the second half of the episode, we look at another merging of music and on-screen presence, the delicate and sometimes uncomfortable managing of labor and artistry among on-screen stars and singers like Marnie Nixon, who dubbed their singing parts. By directing our ears to these carefully set sounds, we can better appreciate how West Side Story served to extend and develop director Robert Wise's strategy of juxtaposing and blending realistic sounds with music. This episode won't emphasize Wise as much, but by digging deeper into the sounds of West Side Story, we will inevitably appreciate Wise and his partner's work much more. Baby John, what are you doing here? Nothing. What are you doing nothing here for? Come on. In an article on the history of dance in American musical theater, Paul Laird singles out West Side Story for integrating dance to an unprecedented degree. West Side Story, after all, is full of dancing, and much of it is ensemble-based choreography as opposed to solo or couples numbers, like what would be seen in a musical starring Fred Astaire, Ann Miller, or Gene Kelly. The show's prologue and the dance at the gym don't even bother with singing. This extraordinary emphasis on shared dance reinforces the story's exploration of community dynamics, and it also reflects West Side Story's creator and director, Jerome Robbins. Robbins was a man of many talents. He worked as a dancer, choreographer, ballet company director, theater director, and producer. He could move with ease from ballet to Broadway styles of dancing. Robbins first collaborated with Leonard Bernstein in the 1940s on the ballet Fancy Free, which later expanded into the musical On the Town. 
but their West Side Story collaboration is their best-known work together. Robbins was a director and choreographer for the 1957 stage show version and co-directed the 1961 film. As one of West Side Story's original creators, the show became his baby, at least as described by Rita Moreno, who plays Anita in the film. Robbins was innovative in how he used dance and movement in West Side Story to develop character. Indeed, nearly all roles were cast based on individuals' dancing ability. This was different from other musicals like Oklahoma and My Fair Lady, where there was a greater divide between large dance numbers featuring the chorus and the main characters' stories. Just play it cool, boy. Real cool. Robbins was not always the easiest to collaborate with. Rita Moreno described him as the most demanding person she ever worked with. Difficult is really a kind word. Russ Tamblin recalled the West Side Story cast would rehearse and rehearse the dances, but Robbins would always want more. Robbins worked his dancers so hard for the cool dance number that there were many injuries. Elliot Feld, who played Baby John, even ended up with pneumonia. In this clip from the documentary West Side Story Memories, Greg Lawrence, author of the book Dance with Demons, describes what conditions for the West Side Story dancers were often like. They would finish shooting the scene and Jerry would tell Elliot, sorry Elliot, we've got to do it again. Eventually he did collapse, and my understanding is that uh, had to be rushed away to the hospital or something. That was the kind of demand that Jerry routinely placed on any performer. Robbins wasn't just tough on dancers. Saul Chaplin, who served as the film's musical supervisor, writes at length about how cruelly Robbins treated those around him. Although Chaplin's memories reflect but one perspective, he was clearly irritated that Robbins expected others, including Chaplin, to redo parts of the film whenever Robbins changed his mind. And he changed his mind a lot. Finally, the executives decided Robbins would need to be fired during filming. His working methods were simply too expensive. According to Chaplin, Robert Wise tried to convince the producers to keep Robbins, but to no avail. This meant Wise finished directing the film without Robbins. While Wise would go to extra lengths to include Robbins on some of the editing decisions, Robbins' connection to the film was drastically diminished. His departure, however, helped reveal others who helped realize such stunning work. Hey, what about me? You. Uh-huh. In and out of the shadows. Maybe you'll find Tony in one of them. Right! One of the members of the musical team who helped make the music and dance less difficult for the cast was rehearsal pianist and music assistant Betty Wahlberg. At Robin's side through rehearsals and filming, Wahlberg was not just a pianist, but a dance arranger and composer in her own right, as well as a frequent lecturer at colleges around the U.S., She worked in ballet, on Broadway, and with modern dance choreographers, and frequently collaborated with Robbins and other dancers outside of West Side Story. Before working as a pianist and dance arranger on both the stage and movie versions of West Side Story, Wahlberg worked as a pianist for the first American Dance Festival at Connecticut College in 1948. 
This was a show of her work with modern dance, and over the years, she would collaborate with many other modern dancers. After West Side Story's stage premiere, Wahlberg continued working with Robbins on Gypsy in 1959 and Fiddler on the Roof in 1964. She also served as Robin's company pianist on his short-lived dance troupe, Ballets USA, founded in 1958. Outside of Robin's and West Side Story, she arranged for Broadway shows such as Anyone Can Whistle, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, Kelly, and On a Clear Day, You Can See Forever. Anyone can whistle, that's what they say. Easy. West Side Story lyricist Stephen Soundheim noted that Wahlberg, quote, was extremely close to Jerry Robbins. They were like thumb and forefinger. Wahlberg's contributions were especially important for the rumble. It is a very complex sequence in terms of music, choreography, and visual editing. And the stakes are incredibly high. This confrontation has been anticipated since the prologue when sharks and jets tripped and kicked each other. Compared to sparring on a children's playground, though, the rumble is a more serious and angry affair. And it is this seriousness that puts West Side Story's viability as a film musical at greatest risk. Capturing all of this action as dance at such close range runs the risk of looking planned or even silly. Everyone involved in this sequence had to sustain dramatic intensity while matching difficult motions to disorienting music, and all of this had to appear instinctive and improvised. As soon as the Tonight Quintet ends and we are transported to the space of the rumble, we hear the three-note whistle, the sounds of boats, cars, and movement, as if we are really under a city bridge with the two gangs. There's not background music, so we can hear very clearly a sharp whistle from Bernardo and the sound of the sharks climbing a chain-link fence. They are the first to enter the scene. Their shoes echo through the space as they hit the floor. Still, we hear no music. As the jets make their entrance, we also hear the sounds of chain-link fences, shuffling, the movement of clothing, and feet hitting pavement. Dialogue is only spoken to begin the fight. But when it does, the street sounds seem to fall away. Ready. 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 Now uh, move in and shake hands. For what? The music enters when Riff's punch connects with Bernardo. Bernstein's score for the rumble begins in 6-8, a meter in which patterns of two and three beats can be alternated and overlaid. One, two, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, or one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. This creates a rhythmically dynamic quality, but the mix of pulses can be bewildering. Robbins painstakingly choreographed to single beats, even though the music and movement do not follow the predictable rhythmic patterns of a more conventional dance. Wahlberg 
help the cast internalize Robin's choreography by counting out beats during rehearsals and playing from the piano to help them navigate Bernstein's rhythmically intricate score. But if Wahlberg's presence and voice helped draw this sequence together, it also shows us that, to a degree, how we hear a film depends on what we see. Although you can't hear Wahlberg's voice coaching dancers in the film's soundtrack, you can get a better sense of her work by re-watching the scene with the sound off. This has the effect of spotlighting the pronounced rhythms of on-screen movement, articulated through confident motions and the cutting of the camera. This coordination is enabled through Wahlberg's voice, and it is these on-screen patterns to which a layered soundscape was appended. This hyper-choreographed fight tells a story with movement at its core. Throughout the fight itself, we hear feet scuffing against the ground, we hear Riff and Bernardo against chain-link fences. We hear the rattle of knives as Riff and Bernardo taunt each other, and once the violence escalates to its peak, we hear punches being thrown and landing. And when Riff and Bernardo both eventually end up dead, the gangs scatter, leaving Tony, the bodies, and the sounds of a police siren echoing throughout the city. These effects were achieved through the labor of Murray Spivak, a critical member of the team who shaped the sonic contours of dancing, voices, and the city in West Side Story. Spivak's work in film sound extended back to 1929 when he began devising sound effects at RKO, a new Hollywood studio designed to exploit growing demand for sound film. In addition to working as a sound film specialist, Spivak was a professional drummer. This meant he had a particularly keen sense of rhythm, timing, and tone color. When Robert Wise arrived at RKO in 1933, Spivak was working in the sound and music departments, helping to ensure that original music and sound effects played off each other to mutual advantage. Spivak even assisted with orchestra recording sessions, quietly moving microphones as musicians played so that solo instruments would emerge from the texture at the appropriate moments. In the RKO archives at UCLA, you can see personal copies of his film scores, which he followed to make sure he moved the microphones to the right place at the right time. He worked on many films, but his magnum opus of this period was King Kong, a concerto for sound effects and orchestra. Spivak met each other at RKO. We don't know how closely they worked together, but since Wise was working on sound editing and Spivak was working on music recording and sound mixing, their efforts probably intersected. For instance, Spivak receives credit on The Gay Divorcee for recording the music, including sounds of tap dancing. (laughs) 
This was the first film to star Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers together, and Wise worked on the film as a sound editor. Spivak and Wise's professional paths did not cross again until West Side Story. In the years leading up to it, Spivak had worked on a series of large production musicals, including the film adaptation of Oklahoma, Carmen Jones, and South Pacific. This made him a good candidate for West Side Story, which brought with it a number of challenges, including layering ambient city noise, instrumental music, vocal music, and musical sound effects, such as whistling and sounds of dancing. Although Spivak didn't work alone on the sound for West Side Story, his position was unusual. Recording sound for West Side Story was managed by the Goldwyn Sound Department, while re-recording and mixing of these sounds was managed by Todd Ayo. Spivak is the only credited engineer who worked on both sides. He is listed as the lead engineer for recording music on the production side and the lead engineer for managing mixing on the post-production side. Similar to his RKO days, he was once again tasked with recording music and mixing it with other sounds as effectively as possible. Unlike Gay Divorcee, West Side Story doesn't have tap dancing, but Spivak did work on integrating the sounds of dance amidst music and other effects. The sounds that are synced with a moving dancing body bring greater expressivity to what we see and hear. In his history of tap dancing, Brian Seibert observes that tapping feet make music visible and movement audible. This idea can be applied beyond tap, Adding or withholding the sounds of dancers changes how we perceive characters' presence. In the prologue, for instance, the Jets walk across the playground and down the sidewalk, incorporating balletic choreography into their swagger. Listen to the audio track alone, and you'll realize their feet are given almost no sound effects at all. This allows the rhythmic hand snaps to pop through the music more clearly, and it also conveys their stealthy dominance. As jets glide through the neighborhood, their scuffing feet make no sound. As soon as they encounter Bernardo, the pitched drums from the beginning of the prologue return. The drum patterns evoke pounding footfalls, so it is fitting that we hear footsteps emerge from these musical sounds. Now, initially, Bernardo's feet are inaudible, a reflection of his own contained anger after having been harassed by the Jets. But as fellow sharks fall in step alongside him, the click of their footsteps adds to an assorted texture of muted brass and percussive attacks. With later sequences, this turning on and off of footsteps continues, shaping our awareness of characters' bodies as they pace or seemingly float through space. The Dance at the Gym offers a fantastic example. The mambo features a lot of additional sound around Bernstein's music. 
There's jeering, cheering, hand claps, and occasional footsteps that emerge from the mix when sharks and jets claim the dance floor through coordinated offensives. The association of footfalls to claiming turf on the dance floor reminds us that this sequence is of a piece with the threats and physical conflicts of jets and sharks on the street. Here, dancing is framed as fighting. The rumble will invert this, turning fighting back into dance. But what this sequence also does is use sound to emphasize the scene's realistic qualities. It's a party with loud music, excited dancers, and folks eager to impress and prove themselves. So instead of allowing Bernstein's music to carry over all of this, Spivak has it vie with the sounds of the crowd and their feet. Normally, ensemble dances in film musicals are not this noisy. And this balancing of ambient noises with music is of a piece with the film's prologue, which established the ways in which music and realistic sound effects would play against and with one another in unusual, expressive ways. It's also a play that fits with Robert Wise's long-standing practice of treating music like sound effects and sound effects like music. This emphasis on the sounds of the dancers over the music changes as soon as Maria and Tony see each other from across the gym. The other dancers are smeared out of focus, leaving only Maria and Tony to gaze at one another. The crowd sounds undergo a sonic form of blurring, becoming softer and much more reverberant, as though we are hearing them from down a long hall. The orchestra's sound remains steady, but then begins to follow the crowd, picking up more reverberation. Unexpectedly, the sounds of dancing feet re-enter the texture, they're louder and contribute to the general haze of dreamy disorientation as the camera is no longer focusing on the dancers. Tony and Maria walk towards each other, the gym darkens, and most of the dancers move off screen, leaving Tony, Maria, and several couples to dance a cha-cha based on the yet-to-be-sung melody from Tony's song, Maria. This dreamlike transition was not original to the film, a similar one occurs in the Broadway show. But Wise's sound team could manipulate the sounds of the orchestra, the dancers' voices, and the sounds of feet more freely, which is exactly what they do to make this transition all the more memorable. The number of musicians playing the cha-cha is much smaller than those wailing away during the mambo, but the miking of the cha-cha musicians is also much closer than before. It's the sonic version of an extreme close-up. We suddenly feel very, very close to the source of these musical sounds, as if we're sitting next to the musicians. This oral intimacy is paired with another audio trick. As the cha-cha begins, the dancer's feet make no sound. 
Although they are dancing lightly, it's not plausible that shoes and high heels would make no noise on a gym floor. Instead, it contributes to the dreamlike quality of Tony and Maria's encounter, where the conventions of orchestral miking and foot sounds are temporarily suspended, shrouding their first moments together in a magical acoustical environment that is distinctly cinematic. history conducted for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Spivak identified West Side Story as one of his very best jobs, and one reason, he explained, had to do with the intensive work on vocal tracks. The lyrics are terribly important, recalled Spivak, and he had to be especially careful matching speaking and singing voices, while also balancing Bernstein's densely textured score with Sondheim's intricate lyrics. Spivak also had to ensure that singing voices, recorded separately offset, matched the actors' mouths on screen. Tricky under any circumstances, this process was more difficult in West Side Story because the film relied extensively on ghost singers, vocal stunt doubles who executed difficult singing tasks while making it seem as though the on-screen actors are singing for themselves. In the studio era, ghost singing was not uncommon. But it can be difficult to track. Not all stars needed ghost singers or needed them all the time. Performers like Judy Garland, Fred Astaire, Bing Crosby, and Rosemary Clooney recorded their own songs, although they laid down these tracks in a separate recording session, not on set. Other stars were dubbed only in select songs. In the 1952 film Singing in the Rain, Debbie Reynolds plays a ghost singer. Incredibly, Reynolds herself receives ghost singer backup from the uncredited Betty Noyes on some songs. He holds her in his arms, would you, would you? But on others, Reynolds does her own singing. Could be grander than to be in Louisiana in the morning. In the morning, it's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning to you. Might be just as if we was in Mississippi. In some cases, ghost singers would drop into songs just to cover a section the star couldn't quite manage. Marnie Nixon did this for the high passages in Marilyn Monroe's performance of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Some of these contributions can be hard to trace, since ghost singers almost never received on-screen credit. Soundtrack albums would list the stars but omit the ghost singers, even though it was their voices that people were enjoying on their stereos. Ghost singers typically received flat fees for their work, which cut them out from soundtrack album royalties. Now, it could have been different. Popular Indian cinema, also known as Bollywood, incorporates huge song and dance numbers. The songs are recorded by recognized vocalists known as playback singers. When the musical numbers are shot on film, these pre-recorded tracks are played back on set, hence playback singer, and the actors mouth the words. This is pretty obvious when watching Bollywood movies. There is not much effort made to convince viewers that the actor on screen is actually singing what we're hearing. 
Playback singers are acknowledged in film credits and build renown for their work. This song, from the 2004 film Virsara, features vocals from Lada Mangashkar. She served as a playback singer on over a thousand films and was in her mid-70s when she recorded here. Ghost singing, in contrast, is all about artful deception. Only you, you're the only thing I'll see forever. In the film's soundtrack, editing and syncing help render ghost singers invisible. In publicity and payment, ghost singers' contributions are concealed. All of this hush-hush was supposed to protect the aura of the on-screen star, but it did not always work out that way. West Side Story's use of ghost singers is more complicated than most Hollywood musicals, in part because neither Natalie Wood nor Richard Boehmer, who plays Tony, had performed in a film musical. So Marnie Nixon provided vocals for Wood's songs, and Jim Bryant covered Boehmer's. Rita Moreno, who plays Anita, and Russ Tamblin, who plays Riff, had more musical experience, but even their songs were shared with ghost singers. This is Moreno singing for herself in America. But her voice was dubbed by Betty Wand for A Boy Like That, as the melody sat too low in her range. Tamblin's singing voice is his own in G. Officer Krupke. Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand, it's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand. Our mothers all are junkies, our fathers all are drunks. Golly Moses, naturally we're punks. G. But for the film's first vocal number, The Jet Song, he was dubbed by Tucker Smith. When you're a jet, you're a jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. When you're a jet, let them do what they can. You've got brothers around, you're a family man. You're never alone, you're never disconnected. You're home with Smith, amazingly, is both a ghost singer and on-screen actor for West Side Story. He plays the role of Ice, the Jet's second-in-command who sings Cool after Riff's death. Boy, boy, crazy boy, get cool, boy. Got a rocket in your pocket, keep coolly cool, boy. Don't get hot, cause man, you've got... Now, if the case of Ice occasionally subbing in as Riff's singing voice seems strange, it is just the tip of the iceberg. As it turns out, there's more than one way to be a ghost, and if we're paying attention, those differences are discernible in the film. Before West Side Story, Richard Boehmer had played a dramatic role in the film adaptation of The Diary of Anne Frank. Mother, I asked you, would you please not say that? Look, he's blushing. <laughs> he's blushing. Please, I'm not, but... Leave me alone, will you? What did I say? You act like it's something to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be ashamed of to have a little girlfriend. That's crazy. She's only 13. So what? And you're 16. It's just perfect. When Wise cast him as Tony, he signed the contract knowing that he would be dubbed. This detail was published in a Daily Variety article early in the film's production. Critics seemed to have forgotten that fact when it came to reviewing the film months later. 
even though Bamer didn't have to develop his voice for the part, he did study singing so that he could get the visual appearance of singing right. On the set, a recording of Brian's voice would play over loudspeakers and Bamer would mouth along. Honestly, he and Bryant make an effective duo. There's something do any day I will know right away soon as it shows. It make them cannonballing down through the sky gleaming its eye bright as a rose. His first song, Something's Coming, has tricky rhythmic syncopations and some awkward melodic leaps. Bamer has to catch the words at the right moment, not just move his mouth at the right time, but also make the movements of his body map plausibly onto the sound of Bryant's voice. Although discussion of ghost singers tends to focus on the challenges for the singers, Bamer's performance also shows how this was not easy work for on-screen actors moving to a voice that isn't their own. And Bamer's Tony is on screen alone, singing to himself in a deserted alley. There are no other visual or sonic elements to distract from his solo performance to Brian's voice. Something's coming, don't know when, but it soon catch the moon, one-handed catch around the corner. In the case of Natalie Wood and Marnie Nixon, it's more complicated. Natalie was the film's leading star. She had already won acclaim in dramas like Rebel Without a Cause. You live here, don't you? Who lives? Hey, where's Dawson High? At University in 10th. Oh, thanks. You wanna carry my books? I got my car. You wanna go with me? I go with the kids. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Natalie committed to developing her voice for West Side Story's songs, but Marnie was hired too, as a sort of insurance. She would step in and dub the sections that Natalie was unable to handle in recording, or at least that was the original plan. In the end, all of Nixon's recordings went into the film, leaving Natalie singing on the editing room floor. According to Nixon, this vocal takeover had to be done surreptitiously. Wood's on-screen performances were filmed as she lip-synced to her own recordings. Then, Nixon recorded the songs herself after Natalie's on-screen timing, the exact opposite process that Jim Bryant and Richard Bamer followed. Among ghost singers, Marnie Nixon was quietly becoming a star herself. For the 1956 film adaptation of The King and I, she had dubbed Deborah Carr's singing voice, and she was Audrey Hepburn's ghost voice for My Fair Lady, made a few years after West Side Story. Nixon's working process with Carr was very different from Wood's. Carr worked closely with Nixon. She studied Nixon's physical appearance as she sang, and she had Nixon watch her own rehearsals so that Nixon could observe her movements and how she used her voice. In her memoir, I Could Have Sung All Night, Nixon recalls, We stood side by side when we were recording. She would point to me and I would point to her, sometimes right in the middle of a measure. In the end, you couldn't tell who was singing what, and that's the way it should be. It was wonderful. So, what does this vocal tag teaming sound like? Here is Deborah Carr delivering meter dialogue in Shall I Tell You What I Think of You? Oh, I'm really rather glad I didn't say that. With the women right there. And the children. And right in this transition is where Nixon enters. 
the children, the children. I'll not forget the children. No matter where I go, I'll always see those little faces looking up at me. It's fairly subtle, even when you're directing your full attention to vocal quality. But when attention is on Deborah Carr's physical presence on screen, noticing this handoff is less likely. The use of secrecy campaigns for ghost singers reflects a broader tendency in Hollywood film to hide the means by which its illusions are constructed. Most sung performances in Hollywood musicals comprise numerous takes, edits, and dubbing, but treatment of actors' voices was not uniform. Art historian and critical theorist Kaya Silverman argues there is a clear gender bias that restricts the female voice in cinema, comparable to how women are presented visually. She states, The female voice is as relentlessly held to normative representations and functions as the female body. In other words, women need to sound a certain way so as to meet expectations of listeners, just as they need to be dressed and made to look a certain way so as to meet expectations of visual beauty. Vocal dubbing and manipulation, in a way, is audible makeup, a change made to appeal to the ears. In My Fair Lady, Rex Harrison recreated his Broadway role of Professor Henry Higgins. He was not a trained singer, and no attempt was made to dub his voice. His songs accommodate this. He delivers them in a pitched, spoken rhythm. I'm an ordinary man who desires nothing more than just an ordinary chance to live exactly as he likes and do precisely what he wants. An average man am I, of no eccentric whim, who likes to live his life free of strife, doing whatever he thinks. Audrey Hepburn, on the other hand, had sung La Vie en Rose in Sabrina and Moon River in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Nevertheless, the music in My Fair Lady is difficult and lies high, and despite singing lessons, Hepburn couldn't get the songs just right, so her voice is dubbed by Marnie Nixon in the film. a room somewhere far away from the cold night air with one enormous chair how wouldn't it be lovely Hepburn was devastated by the replacement of her voice and her response points to a major difference between cosmetic adjustments and vocal dubbing makeup alters the actor's appearance but it does not replace the actor on screen Dubbing substitutes the actor's voice with another person's voice. That such an act is even possible speaks to the incredible labor of ghost singers and editors. But when such procedures are done secretly and unevenly, the dubbed might feel uncomfortable with a deception that silences them on and off screen. West Side Story's music supervisor Saul Chaplin decided who would be dubbed. And it is striking that West Side Story, unlike many other musicals of this era, balances dubbing across gender and character ethnicity. Maria and Tony are dubbed in full. Riff and Anita are dubbed for some of their songs. 
But Natalie Wood hoped to sing her own songs and was reluctant to work with Nixon. So Nixon had to study Wood's singing style through recordings made during Wood's vocal lessons. Wood could sing. Because in finishing West Side Story, she went directly to work on the film adaptation of the musical Gypsy, for which she sang her own songs. Let me entertain you. Let me make you smile. Let me do a few tricks, some old and then some new tricks. I'm very versatile. Even so, Maria's soprano lines are difficult, even for trained singers. In I Feel Pretty, Maria's line is often rhythmically quick and lies high. In addition, some of the highest notes are meant to be sustained for several measures. Managing these passages requires careful breath support and planning from the performer. When listening to a side-by-side comparison of Wood's voice versus Nixon's, Wood sounds softer, airier, and less supported by breath, leading to a lower dynamic level. Higher phrases are less expertly supported because they tend to fall away from the pitch and falter. Let's take a listen to Wood singing in a rehearsal recording. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and gay. And I pity any girl who isn't me today. I feel charming, oh so charming. It's alarming how charming I feel And so pretty that I hardly can believe I'm real Nixon's voice, on the other hand, sounds full, supported, and more on pitch than Wood's version. I feel pretty, oh so pretty I feel pretty and witty and gay And I pity any girl who's in me today When comparing Wood's demo to Nixon's recording, it is Nixon's vocal performance that accentuates Wood's gestures. In this passage, as Natalie Wood raises her shoulders and pushes her arms forward, Nixon leans into the word attractive. The slight change makes Maria, as created through Nixon's voice and Wood's on-screen presence, seem more confident and witty. She owns the line and dispenses breezily with the tricky verbal patter that comes next. Such a pretty face, such a pretty dress, such a pretty smile, such a pretty me. In contrast, the slight wobble in Wood's voice from her demo and her rhythmic imprecision evoke an altogether different Maria. See the pretty girl in that mirror there. Who could that attractive girl be? Such a pretty face, such a pretty dress, such a pretty smile, such a pretty me. Wood's less comfortable delivery suggests that feeling pretty is exciting but aspirational. She feels pretty, but this new emotion is a work in progress. Nixon's assured delivery lend Wood's on-screen gestures greater impact and humor. Feeling pretty is shorthand for the conviction that Maria can handle whatever challenges the world might give her. I feel stunning, stunning, Crediting ghost singers was not something Hollywood managed well. Ghost singers gave their voices to the film 
and their voices to the soundtrack albums. Lack of credit for their work also meant less compensation. Jim Bryant received no royalties for album work. He attributes this to being relatively new in L.A. when asked to do West Side Story work, and he says he was terrified and didn't know anything about anything. Asking for credit would not have been the correct professional move for him. Nixon and Wand, however, did receive some record royalties. Nixon's negotiating ended up being a job for her managers. Directors and sound editors on the film were told they would not be using a note of her voice if royalties were not awarded. And it helped that Nixon had a direct connection with Leonard Bernstein, who eventually agreed to share his cut of the soundtrack album royalties with her. Nixon had premiered Pierre Boulez's Improvisation sur Mélarmé with Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic the year before. Nixon's singing shows offer incredible stylistic breadth, which extended from Broadway to avant-garde concert music. It is interesting to consider how that versatility, which led to her performing Boulez with Bernstein and recording Bernstein's West Side Story, also helped her break barriers as a ghost singer in Hollywood. In contrast, Betty Wand used the legal system, filing a lawsuit in 1963 for damages and credit. Marnie Nixon claims that ghost singers eventually receiving royalties on West Side Story was a historic first and led to changes in Hollywood in giving credit and profit sharing. And while Bryant received no royalties or much credit for his voice for Tony, he says he was not bitter. He states that Bamer was a nice guy, and every time he did an interview, he would mention my name. So, things worked out. In the end, the ghost singers of West Side Story are a defining part of the film's soundscape. And Nixon and Juan's fight for royalties in West Side Story meant that this film in particular helped subsequent ghost singers when it came to compensation. But ghost singing also raises questions about creative collaboration. Having Richard Boehmer match Jim Bryant's vocal tracks may actually have helped Boehmer to focus his work on transforming musical energy through physical expression. Who knows? It's only just out of reach down the block on a beach. Maybe tonight. Maybe tonight. Maybe tonight. The rest of the ghost singers, Marnie Nixon, Betty Wand, and Tucker Smith, had to fit their vocal performances to footage. A boy who kills cannot love. A boy who kills this was harder for the singers, but when it was done really well, we can see and hear how a ghost singer actually interprets and accentuates on-screen gestures that even the actor may not have appreciated. Ghost singers were not merely imitating or enhancing their on-screen counterparts. Their own ideas shaped the characters in profound ways. Just wait and see, just wait, Maria, just wait and see. In this episode, we've spent a lot of time noticing work that is supposed to go unnoticed. There is a quiet understanding that if Betty Wahlberg, Murray Spivak, and West Side Story's ghost singers are doing their jobs correctly, we shouldn't be aware of their work. 
Well, now that we know, what exactly changes? In a part of our interview with Ernesto Acevedo Munoz that did not make it into the last episode, we asked him if knowing about the Ghost Singers affected his attitude toward the film. Once you learned more about the dubbing and who was dubbed and everything like that, did it change how you watched or listened to the film at all? That's, that's the best question you've asked me all afternoon. Uh, they, they've all been good, but that's the best question. Uh, but the answer is simple, no. Uh, but this sure. is a, an important part of film history, and it's an important part of recording history. And then again, movies are all smoke and mirrors anyway. Movies are all uh, concoction. Movies are all you know, manufactured to the, the last detail. I love this idea of concoction, of ideas from multiple people coming together in concert. Whether we notice the voices and sounds differently as we watch the film, these behind-the-scenes relationships matter. And although we haven't emphasized Robert Wise's presence as much in this episode, his efforts to nurture positive relationships enabled their work and its careful presentation within the film. In an interview for American Film conducted 15 years after West Side Story's production, Robert Wise made a special point of singling out Betty Wahlberg as invaluable member of the production, who helped cast members graft Robin's choreography onto the music, even after Robin's had left. It's uncommon for directors to celebrate the input of rehearsal pianists, and Wise's remark reflects the value of Wahlberg's work and Wise's appreciation of those whose contributions might otherwise be unsung. Murray Spivak, in his oral history, speaks of how Wise supported his work and took special interest in his mixing of singing voices against the instrumental accompaniment. Wise and Spivak would continue collaborating on The Sound of Music, Star, another musical starring Julie Andrews, and the historical epic The Sand Pebbles. Impressed by Spivak's work, Wise would even petition the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to adjust its rules for awarding best sound, which typically went to the production companies instead of to individuals doing the creative work. Spivak would be among the beneficiaries of the Academy's revised rules, receiving an Oscar for his sound design on the Barbara Streisand musical Hello, Dolly! in 1970. I wish to thank the members of the Academy, Mr. Ernest Lehman, Mr. Gene Kelly, and especially the members of the 20th Century Fox Sound Department who worked with me on Hello, Dolly. Less is known about the ghost singer's interactions with Wise, but there is an interesting coda for Marnie Nixon. She snagged a rare on-screen part in Wise's The Sound of Music, where she plays the songful sister Sophia. When I'm with her, I'm confused, out of focus and bemused, and I never know exactly where I am. Unpredictable as weather. The healthy quality of these relationships becomes audible in the film's sound, and explains why the sonic quality of West Side Story remains so distinctive, unlike any other film musical. Through sound, West Side Story honors its characters' lived experiences through realistically rendered urban soundscapes. But it also grants them a liberating freedom from their circumstances, allowing them to leave their footsteps behind and sing with new voices, to imagine and inhabit alternative realms. Sound in West Side Story becomes a means for expressing and accommodating the overwhelming forces of attraction and division, of hope and anger, that lie at this story's heart. It'll be all right, I know it. We're really together now. <laughs> but it's not us. It's everything around us. 
then I'll take you away where nothing can get to us. Not anyone or anything. There's a place for us somewhere a place for us 60 years after its premiere, the 1961 film remains an important piece of American culture and a touchstone for recent adaptations, whether on screen or on stage. A new revival of West Side Story opened on Broadway in 2020, just weeks before COVID forced theaters to close their doors. And during the 2021 Academy Awards, a teaser trailer for a new film adaptation dropped. Directed by Steven Spielberg with a screenplay by playwright Tony Kushner, the film does not hide its indebtedness to the 1961 film. The trailer includes a shot of Rita Moreno, who has a role, and features her singing voice. Is a place for us Somewhere a place for us And as Ernesto observed in our meeting with him, West Side Story remains particularly relevant when matters of justice around immigration and the treatment of people of color remain unresolved. We have the opportunity to expand this conversation. It's -hmm. it's a conversation piece that we we can start a certain conversation about Puerto Ricans, about migration, about poverty, about race, not because a movie offers the answers, but because it might give us the opportunity to ask the questions. As West Side Story changes across the decades and new adaptations continue to emerge, the 1961 film still has something to teach us, if we listen closely. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by us, Nathan Platt and Anastasia Schulze. Special thanks to Trevor Harvey, who provided mentoring and is a host and producer of the podcast Ethnomusicology Today. We also want to thank again Dr. Ernesto Acevedo Munoz, author of West Side Story as Cinema. To hear more of our conversation with him, check out the first episode. Special thanks to Nicole Esposito, University of Iowa professor of flute, for once again sharing her distinctive take on... This project is supported by the Iowa Center for Research by Undergraduates and the University of Iowa School of Music. Aaron Platt designed our elegant logo. You can learn more about the podcast at soundingcinema.com and by following us on Instagram at soundingcinema. And if you are enjoying listening, help others find us by subscribing and rating the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And for our next episode, we'll gather with special guests to discuss two very different films that put sound and music at the center of the movie-going experience. Jacques Demy's 1964 film The Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Darius Martyr's recent Oscar winner Sound of Metal. We look forward to sharing that conversation with you.